We're going back to Matthew chapter 5 this morning. kids who are here missed last week's message <laughs> because of the fun we were having here. Um, but last week we spent a lot of time with poor in spirit and I did not talk about the kingdom of heaven and we need to spend some time on this promise Jesus makes to the poor in spirit uh, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And we need to do this we need to ask um what did Jesus mean by the kingdom of heaven? What, what is he saying actually comes to these people? And it's important because this was his primary focus. If you look back at chapter 4, verse 17, it says from that time on, from the time of his, his baptism and temptation, Jesus began to preach and say, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then down in verse 23, Jesus was going throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. So uh, the kingdom is Jesus' message. Uh, if he's preaching the gospel, the gospel is essentially a way of saying the message or the, the good message of the kingdom. Uh, this is his concern, and, and so that the first beatitude has something to say about the kingdom, not at all surprising, the whole book of Matthew is focused on the kingdom of heaven, more so than, than the other synoptic gospels, uh, Mark and Luke. Uh, they also make lots of reference to the kingdom of God, but not like Matthew. And Jesus is telling the people to prepare themselves for the kingdom of heaven. He says, repent. This, this wonderful word we all love to hear because it reminds us of the guy carrying the sign that says, repent or perish. Um, uh, those obnoxious people on soapboxes and the promenade when they're the last thing you want to see and the last way that you want to see Jesus represented in public. Um, Rotten are the soapbox preachers who say <laughs> repent or burn. Um, but blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And when Jesus says repent, he's using a classic biblical word all through the Old Testament. What God is always saying to Israel, that simply means turn or return. And he, he's saying, essentially, you're going the wrong direction. You need to turn around. You need to come toward me. It's always a turning toward God. But there's, a, there's always two sides of it. There's the turning toward and the turning away from. So you've been fascinated by these other gods and you've 
pursued them, uh, they've even gotten hold of you, turn from that to me. Turn from idolatry to the living God. Turn from this nonsense to the wise way. I, I think the best way for us to understand the word repent today is rewire your brain. Now, I know that doesn't, that doesn't necessarily sound like it, but the Greek word repentance is a compound, metanoia, which means change your mind or change your thoughts. And the idea is you change the way you think about things, the way you see things, your attitude about things, and then that changes your behavior. It's, it's a change that, that begins with breaking old brain habits, as Jeffrey Schwartz would call them. And that's the, the wonderful news that Jeffrey Schwartz has brought to the world um, that even old brains still have enough plasticity to make significant changes. And he found this working with uh, patients who were obsessive, uh, had obsessive uh, compulsion disorder. And uh, he, through uh, fMRI and other imaging, brain imaging methods, they saw that the brains of the patients had changed. Had, did I forget to do that? I think you might have. Oh, I'm sorry. Oh no, I did it. You did? The fault is with you. She can't hear. <laughs> no, I, I should speak up. Which one, which one are you, Jeff? One or two? Testing, one, two, three. Testing, four, five, six. Testing, tribulations. Meditation, according to Jeffrey Schwartz, John Cabot, Zen, many others, uh, many other researchers, mindful meditation <coughs> is very useful in changing what the brain is doing. So, if you're a person who's prone to anxiety, when you recognize those triggers and the anxiety begins to rise, if you change what your brain is doing, if you bring your attention to the present moment and your experience, your physical experience in the present moment, it puts your brain on a different task. And the result is that those neurons that were firing in anxiety are inhibited. 
and neurons in the somatic cortex that are focused on body sensations are excited. And now you have started <coughs> the first step of a new path of repentance, um, of changing the mind. Anyway, when he, when he is preparing the people, he says, you need to change because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And what does he mean by at hand? Well, we can say, well, you know, that means it's coming, but it's, it's still not here. Uh, the Greek word means to come near or, or to approach, but listen to how it's used later on. When Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane with his disciples, and he's praying, and he's in agony, and they're sleeping, he says to them, get up. Let us be going. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. Same word. And then, while he was still speaking, behold, Judas, one of the twelve, came accompanied by a large crowd with swords and clubs. So there, at hand, can mean it's so close that while I'm still speaking, it is arriving. Now, that's really important to understand. Um, so what did Jesus have in mind when he talked about the kingdom of heaven? I'm going to give you my take on it. And <clears throat> there are others who share this point of view. <clears throat> Sorry. But not everybody. So I'm going to give you the freedom to make up your own mind about it. Um, <clears throat> I'm just going to do as much as I can to prejudice your thinking. <laughs> Towards the right direction. But first of all, the kingdom of heaven is Israel's hope for a national restoration. I think most of us have heard this. That there was a lot of agitation in the time of Jesus, and not long after his lifetime, a significant revolt of Israel against the Roman Empire, led mostly by zealous Jewish believers. Later on, uh, in the 3rd century, 4th century, there was the Bar Kokhba rebellion, and Bar Kokhba was a rabbi. So, I mean, that was definitely a religious uprising against the oppression of Rome, and it was crushed into the ground so that Israel was obliterated. And the Romans changed the name of Israel to Palestine in order to wipe, off, wipe Israel off the face of the earth. So, <clears throat> the promise of God from the time of Moses was that in following him, they received his blessing, his support, and that their nation would be above all the other nations. He said, you will be the head and not the tail, in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 28, verse 13. You'll be the head, not the tail. You'll be above and not underneath others. So here they are living underneath the Romans, and they had lived underneath the Babylonians, and they had... Uh, lived underneath the Persians. And uh, they're waiting now for God to, to bring his, his kingdom. The closest they had ever come to it was during the time of David and Solomon. King David, their, their monarchies came the closest to it. At that time, Israel was a world empire and a kingdom to be reckoned with. But that, those days were long gone. And so the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, especially, and others, 
could envision a future in which God's kingdom came, a golden era for Israel and his chosen people. And the world would finally see God's desires fulfilled. Um, now Israel knew that it was because they had turned away from God, they had turned their backs on him, that he had turned away from them. So now from the time of their exile, and the time of Ezra and Nehemiah, they were, they were very much committed to what they believed was God's will in the Torah. And if we live right by the Torah, if we go back to, to Moses and his teachings, then we'll have that blessing of God and the kingdom will be restored to Israel. Now, if you say, well, what did that kingdom look like? It looked like perfect justice and perfect righteousness. Imagine everybody being treated fairly, being treated justly. Uh, no ulterior motives, no hidden agendas, no hidden costs. Um, what a person says is what is. Justice is, is society-wide. Righteousness is the same thing, but it's just person to person. It's doing what is right, given your relationship to this other person, doing what the relationship requires. We'll talk more about righteousness in the future. So what does it look like, according to Isaiah, and the wolf will dwell with the lamb, and the leopard will lie down with the young goat. And the calf and the young lion will feed together, and the little boy will lead them. And the cow and the bear will graze, their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The nursing child will play at the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child will put his hand on the viper's den. They will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Isaiah chapter 11. It's idyllic, isn't it? It's, it's uh, this wonderful pastoral environment. So that's the first meaning of the kingdom of heaven. And that's what most people heard when Jesus said, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Secondly, the meaning of the word kingdom is something like rule or rulership. To belong to a kingdom is to be under the authority of the king that ruled in that area. When Jesus taught us to pray, or model prayer, he said, pray, your kingdom come, your will be done in earth as it is in heaven. William Barclay said, if we take the two petitions of the Lord's prayer and set them together, we get the definition of the kingdom. The kingdom of God is a society where God's will is perfectly done in earth as it is in heaven. If the kingdom come where, where God's will is done, that's where his kingdom has come. Wherever God's kingdom goes, his will is done. So imagine the world under God's government. God's will is perfect peace, shalom, and all that wonderful Hebrew word entails. Third, 
But the kingdom of heaven re referred to a realm. The kingdom was a realm. And again, it's the realm of whatever is under the king's authority, the space and its population. So the kingdom of heaven is the realm of heaven. And I choose to broaden the meaning of realm, and I do this quite arbitrarily, um, to dimension. The dimension of heaven, or the dimension of God. The dimension in which God comes close to humankind. All right, we live in a, a democracy, right? Well, you know, sort of. Um, and um, we understand what democracy means, or monarchy means, or oligarchy, or you know, one of these forms of government. How about theocracy? The word was probably invented by Josephus, the Jewish historian. And he was talking about the way God wanted to govern Israel as a theocracy. But in time, Israel wanted a human king. And that really bothered the prophet Samuel, who complained to God, and he said, Samuel, don't take it so hard. They haven't rejected you from being their king. They rejected me, and they've been doing this all along. I'm used to it. Um, so God had wanted to have this direct rule over his people, and they have resisted that. But the kingdom of heaven, or the, the dimension of heaven, is the dimension which God's power directly affects humankind. That's where he comes in, he, he has his way with people, directly. And sometimes, you know, he's, he does this by arranging their circumstances if they have no choice. And, and you can see when a person doesn't get it at first, because there are claw marks all the way to the door <laughs> that, that he's opened for them and he wants them to go through. Um, and you can see, if you knew my past, you can see those claw marks all the way from 18 years old into ministry. Um, or he may speak to a person, but like the song that Brendel sang, saying today, God, you may speak, I don't always hear it. But everything's okay if you keep me in your spirit. And that, that's not just a nice rhyming set. That's real, that's our reality. The kingdom, the, the dimension in which God influences my life, um, it's okay if I don't hear it because he's got a hold of me and he, he takes me where he wants me to go. When people heard Jesus say the kingdom of heaven, they might not have thought of all these concepts, but these concepts were all pieces of the puzzle. So this is why the poor in spirit are blessed, not will be blessed. Jesus isn't saying, blessed are you poor in spirit. One day, when we all get to heaven, well, what a day of rejoicing that will be. In the meantime, it sucks. <laughs> what can you say? Uh, life sucks. You know, it's a bitch, then you die. Um, but, you know, heaven is the reward. He's not saying that. He said, I mean, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's all theirs, and it's arrived. But there's an obvious problem. Um, the kingdom of heaven has not arrived. Uh, at least not in any recognizable way. 
this leads us to the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. In uh, Matthew 13, 11, the disciples said to Jesus, why do you teach the crowds in parables? And he said, to you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. And then he's telling these stories, stories about very ordinary things, and it's beautiful for us because Jesus, by taking ordinary things and saying, look close, look close, you'll see the kingdom of heaven. It's here, it's right here, an ordinary thing. In, in objects you bump into every day, in events every day, the kingdom of heaven is here. So, <clears throat> the expectation is that the coming of the kingdom would be spectacular. It would be with fireworks and lightning displays and earthquakes and the sun going dark and the moon turning red. And that's what Israel was waiting for. But there had been no kind of divine eruptions, no cosmic upheavals, no nations falling, collapsing, bowing before Israel. Aside from some rather remarkable miracles that Jesus had performed, nothing has changed. So one purpose of the parables in Matthew 13, there's quite a few of them, one purpose of the parables is to explain why this was so. How is it that the kingdom of heaven can already be present and yet, there's no sign of it to the average person or, or to normal human vision. And I imagine Jesus sitting there, maybe pinching between his thumb and forefinger of a black seed, and, and saying, you see this mustard seed? The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. And he explains how something so small and insignificant could be compared to the kingdom of heaven. I mean, a bird could eat it. Um, the sun could scorch it. It's, it's very vulnerable. How can this be the kingdom of heaven? Well, it's just a small seed at first, but in the ground, in right soil, and, and water, and so on, it can grow into the largest plant in the garden and become a tree that birds nesting. So, the kingdom of heaven had come, but not the whole tree, just the seed of it. And it wasn't necessarily planted just in Israel, but it was planted in the hearts of men and women. And it was growing there. And um, it's real. And it's dynamic with divine energy. He doesn't say the kingdom of heaven is like a pebble, because a pebble is not going to grow. The seed is going to grow. It has life in it. And this seed is, is the word that he's speaking. It's falling on their hearts like seed. That's his first parable. The seed is the word of God, he says. And it's bringing the life of the kingdom of, of heaven, the dimension of God, to people. And those who are receiving it, well, there's this growth in them. Like most children living in his time, there's no doubt Jesus watched his mother as she is making bread. And women would, would make bread every day. Um, they bake bread every day. And 
watching her work the dough, she takes off a small bit, bit of it, she sets it aside, and it's, a, it's allowed to ferment. And then later on, when she's making another uh, batch of dough, she takes that fermented dough, which is now yeast or leaven, and she adds it to the flour that she's making, and it permeates the flour so that that loaf will also have the, the characteristics of having yeast. It, it will rise, it will be a little bit sweeter uh, to the taste and so on. But Jesus doesn't say, the kingdom of heaven is like a woman who mixed some yeast into, into the flour and making bread. He doesn't say she mixed it. He said she hid the yeast in the flour. Now the correct way it would say would be to say she mixed it with the flour, and there is in Aramaic and Greek language a word that would suffice for that. It would be the correct word. It, it might be um, she joined or she united, but they had they had a word that is closer to our word mix and hid. So he's not just talking about the process of making bread. He's saying something about the kingdom of heaven, that when that yeast is mixed into the flour, it disappears. It's hidden. It's, it, it's gone for all intents and purposes, as far as the eye can see. But the bread still rises. So it's there. It's hidden. But it permeates and affects this, this reaction. Right? It has this influence over the dough. It became invisible, but it still permeated the whole loaf. And the kingdom is present, but it's hidden. It's, it's invisible. And um, yet you cannot say that it isn't at work just because you don't see it. It's spreading and it's influencing individuals and society. Jesus tells us about a man walking through a field and he stumbles over something and he digs a little bit and he finds this treasure. And he buries it and for the joy of that treasure, he goes and sells everything he has and purchases the field and the treasure becomes his. Now, what has he given up? We don't know. Maybe he had an ox, maybe he had a flock of sheep, um, maybe he had a home, maybe he had some nice clothing. Everything went. Everything he had, he, he sacrificed everything, but he got the treasure. And to him, that was more than a fair trade. Now, Jesus saying, here is something worth liquidating your assets for. I mean, he would have said that if you were an accountant. But um, <laughs> we would never sell out for the kingdom of heaven if we did not know its value. And we would never know the value of the kingdom of heaven if we never found it, if we never experienced it. I think that's so important. I grew up in a Christian environment, or a, let me say religious subculture, where all the time we were being told, give 100% to God. Give 100% of your life to God. 100% of your energy. 100% of your thoughts. 100% of your time. 
Whatever you're doing, give 100% to God. And if you want to be a saint, give 110%. Everyone knows that that's impossible. There's no such thing. Um, when give 100% is a command, it's pretty miserable. Especially if, if you're holding on to things that you think, no, this is worthwhile, and this has value, and it doesn't have God written over it directly, but it certainly is significant, and I don't see why I should give it up. In fact, this is what helps to keep me going. Try not to give this up. doesn't make sense. But if God were to reveal to us something so fine, something so wonderful that everything else in our life diminished in comparison. Giving 100% comes naturally. Selling out comes naturally. I don't want anything to keep me back from this. I don't want anything to hold me back. And you see, most of us haven't had that experience. We might have had moments of that experience where we said, okay, I surrender all, and meant it in a moment. And moments later, I surrender some, you know, 80%, and, I, and then later, I surrender 50%, but it's not all, anyway. And I think that that's, I think that's normal life. I think that's foreign spirit. And I, I don't think that God finds us for that, but I do think he says there's a better way to know better way. Um, all right. I, I want to not digress. Um, okay, so Jesus tells us the, the parable to let us know the treasure's there. He wants us to find it. He wants us to have his joy when we find it. And, um, and, and to be motivated by joy. How many Christians do you know who live their lives like they found a treasure? And if you just have that expression on their face, I found a treasure. I won the lotto. Ah, well, don't look at me. <laughs> I got a long ways to go here. Okay, um, now, right after the guy who finds some treasure in the field, along comes a merchant to the marketplace, and he's looking for pearls of great value. And the difference between him and the lucky guy who found the treasure is the merchant is seeking something. He knows what it is he wants. This is like, like, like people who want to know God. They want to know the, the truth. They want the real deal. They're hungry for it. They, they desire it, and they're seeking. That's the merchant he's seeking. He just didn't know that there was anything so exquisite as this one fantastic pearl he finds in the marketplace. And he does the same thing, though. He goes and sells all that he has so he can buy that one pearl. And that fascinates me because... Now, how is that pearl going to produce any income for him? If he just wants to have it and he sold everything for it, what's he going to do with it now? Well, you know, he can put it on a little stand and charge people to come and look at it. <laughs> you know, and for extra money, you can touch it. Um, but really, anyway, Jesus doesn't want us to panic over what we give up. And we do that sometimes. We give something away and we go, oh, should I have done that? Oh, man, maybe I'll need that someday. 
Um, the sacrifice, Jesus looks for it voluntary and joyful. And the point is, what is gain? Not, he doesn't want us to yeah, I gave up this and gave up that, all these wonderful things for Jesus. He says, oh, thanks, what am I? Dogging? His invitation to us to seek first the kingdom of heaven, all these other things will be yours. It, all these things, they find their way into, into your life. Don't worry about it. God knows what you need. All right, so so he, he holds it out there for us. It's beautiful. It's wonderful. The kingdom of heaven is something that if you saw it for a moment, you desire it the rest of your life. These parables serve a specific purpose. Uh, I was in a, uh, I was auditing a class in Fuller Seminary one time, and I heard a professor uh, say uh, something about paradigm shift. And he was explaining that we need to enlarge our worldview to include the supernatural. That when, when the Christian lives a, a purely natural life, like there's, there's nothing beyond this life, then we live like everybody else. We live with all the same fears, all the same drives, all the same concerns, all the same issues, all the same ulcers and <laughs> nervous disorders and so on. Um, so he says, in order to enlarge our worldview, we need a paradigm shift where you know we've had this one mental model of how things work and, and what exists and what does not exist, and that model needs to change. And um, when questions were committed, I asked him, well, how can you go about a paradigm shift like that? How, how do you manufacture that kind of paradigm shift? Because I really wanted it. I wanted it. I heard what he was saying. I got it. I wanted it. And he paused. And, and he was thinking. You can see the wheels grinding. And he said, well, analogy is useful. That made perfect sense to me. It was exactly what I had been studying at the time regarding human consciousness. That most of our learning is by analogy. We make associations with things we, between things we know and things that we're learning. And, and those associations or analogies help us to make the next step. So analogy is useful. Well, that's the parables of Jesus. Jesus is telling us these stories. He's giving us these analogies to help create a paradigm shift in our life. So suddenly something exists for us that did not exist before. That is, it has always existed. We have not seen it. Because we have no category for it. We have no, we don't have the eyes or the ears or even the heart to see and hear and understand because this is transcendent. It has to be shown to, it has to be revealed. And so um, Jesus used parables to help people get out of their narrow thinking and to introduce them to the realm of the Spirit. You know, C.S. Lewis, and he was a, he's a, very honored uh, evangelical apologist and diplomat, though he did not see himself as an apologist. He insisted that Christians maintain a strong belief in the supernatural. And when I read this about him, it bothered me because at that time, I thought that anyone who, who made a distinction between the natural and the supernatural was a, a Platonist, a, a Platonic philosopher uh, or believer. And, um, and yet I've come to understand and to appreciate what it was he was saying. He said, to explain even an atom, physicist Schrodinger wants seven dimensions. 
course, you know, if you know anything about string theory, it's up to like 10 or 11 dimensions now. This, this has to do with quantum physics. He says, and give us new senses, and we should find a new nature. Nature, supernature. He's talking about, you know, uh, we find that there's something above the natural world that we see with our eyes. There may be natures piled upon natures, each supernatural to the one beneath it, before we come to the abyss of pure spirit. And to be in that abyss at the right hand of the Father may not mean being absent from any of these natures, <clears throat> may mean a yet more dynamic presence on all levels. To get to heaven, do I have to leave earth? He's saying, maybe not. Maybe it's discovering the dimension of heaven, and this earth is still here, and we're still in it. We've just discovered another layer of reality. <coughs> he mentioned Schrodinger. There are other physicists today who are saying, we don't need seven dimensions, we don't need 10 or 11 dimensions, just a fifth dimension beyond our four-dimensional universe, the three space, one time dimension. Just a fifth dimension satisfies the you know, the necessity of explaining how one of the, the, the four basic forces leaks out of our universe. Where does it go? You only need one other dimension to satisfy the mathematics. <clears throat> I have just told you more than I know. <laughs> I have no idea what I just said. <laughs> but the kingdom of heaven is a present moment, supernatural reality, it may not break into the surface of our universe, there may not be a divine healing, um, you know, a miracle when you ask for it, um, but it still affects our lives and it still transforms us. One scholar who's written extensively on the parables says, to be a disciple of the kingdom, and Jesus uses that term at the end of Matthew 13, verse 52. To be a disciple of the kingdom means hearing and remaining focused on the message of the kingdom in such a way that one is defined by it. The key to spiritual formation is the willingness to listen. The practice of the discipline of listening and responding appropriately to received word. This changes us. This begins the transformation. We listen openly and receptively and as the word comes, the seed planted in us and it changes us. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And you know, we can pray, your kingdom come into this present moment. And sometimes when I sit in silence, I will pray that prayer. God, let your kingdom come into this present moment. Sometimes I get a feeling just from praying that, a feeling that it creates an openness in my mind and heart. And I'm comforted, and I know that God's at work. And sometimes I feel nothing. But I still know, in my head, God's at work. And that's enough. Because I can say, God, my intellect is sitting on the porch right now. doesn't want to come inside. So let this just be spirit to spirit. Because I know that that will still affect the necessary changes in me. I know that that will be fundamental enough to accomplish your will. Like, your kingdom come into my prayer time. 
your kingdom come into my Bible reading. So even as I'm reading, I can be mindful of God's presence. Your kingdom come into the chores that I do. Your kingdom come into my conversations. Your kingdom come. And then be mindful of that spiritual presence as best we can. All right. Just one other word about the kingdom of God. There's many more words I could share. There's been volumes written on the kingdom of heaven. But this, to me, is one of the best. It's one of the most comforting. Jesus said this to his disciples in Matthew chapter 12, verse 32. I'm going to say it to you now. So open your heart and receive this, because I believe Jesus wants to speak to you. Fear not. Do not be afraid, little flock. It is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Could you stand with me, please? Yes. What I want you to do now is recite the Lord's Prayer together. Um, and just so we're all on the same page, we say trespasses, not debtors. Um, and also, if you Bend in uh, AA or Al Anon. Slow the heck down, okay? We're going to pray this a little bit slowly. Let me set the pace and feel the book in okay? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.